assembly today can cry out and praise him for all that he has done, all that he has accomplished. Nothing needs to be done any longer. It has been fulfilled. David knew it 1,000 years BC, and today we can understand it more clearer, more precisely what he has done for us. And in our assembly, we cry out to him, and we say thank you and praise him. And that pretty much concludes our song for today. Amen. Thank you. I like the structure. We get to move into focusing on the word, right? Neat. All right. So I'm going to be bringing us into Exodus chapter 7 this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is Purpose in Place. And I believe we'll continue pressing in to what we've been doing with the season of fire. Let me preface it with this. What we've been doing with the season of fire is trying to, or well, growing in our love for God, growing in our passion for God, and understanding what his judgments have to do with that. And... Um, Obviously, we, we look to the cross, right? We look to Christ, as Pastor he was pointing out, and we see that being a judgment, and that judgment supplied this glorious reality that we have. Or even to push even further, AD 70, the coming of the Lord, that judgment further supplied this glorious reality that we now have in Christ. And we're going to continue seeing that throughout God's Word this morning. So if we may just uh, preface this with a prayer for the sermon, and then I'll get right into what I have for us. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the spirit that illuminates the word, Lord. For without that spirit, we know that we would not be able to comprehend the things of God. Lord, again, we thank you for establishing us in you, Lord, that you would have all the glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I'm going to open up to the text this morning. Exodus 7, and I'm going to read through the first five verses. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you a god to the Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to the Pharaoh, and he, that he shall send the children of Israel out of his land. I will harden the Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that... I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So we see right here we're, we're entering into a story that's going to be revealing the judgments of God. And we're going to see this morning that those judgments are very they're pointed. Each one of those judgments makes something known about what God was bringing about in Egypt. Uh, this passage here, which is actually in the Jewish writings, is known as Parshat Ba'ira, is uh, a lot about the Pharaoh's free will. You would imagine that comes up in this conversation here, because the Lord says he will harden the heart of the Pharaoh. So we're going to have to talk a little bit about the Pharaoh's um, free will, if you will. And what that does is that brings us into talking about a couple different things. Um, free will in and of itself, what that means. Uh, prescience, which is another phrase for God having predestination, but it's not quite predestination. There's that middle ground, that prescience. Uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through this sermon this morning. One of the things I love that the rabbis pointed out was that they said this, as long as these three components stay within their boundaries, free will, 
prescience and predestination. Right? Predestination meaning God did it, God started it, and it's happening the way God wants it. And when we understand those three things and we keep them within their proper bounds, because, again, we know that there's things that we are able to freely choose to do, and then we know that there's things that we are not freely able to do. A dead man can't raise himself no matter how hard he wants to or tries. And uh, so we see that there's this balance that must be maintained. Matter of fact, the rabbis say the philosophical balance between these things must be maintained in order for each of them to be understandable. Turmoil results, however, when the balance is upset, right? When you see, uh, again, we, we've talked about this in our theological studies where you see people taking this free will concept and going way too far in that they think they pretty much did the universe and that they're in charge of their salvation. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that and we've had that conversation. So it's interesting that the, this passage brings us to that discussion because, again, we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I imagine I'll challenge you in that regard this morning. Something Vicky had said to me uh, this week when we were talking about the Bible and talking about the, the full story of the Bible was that it comes off as a sad story. And I agree. I agree. Um, you know, you read through the Bible and you see uh, a sad story. You see, obviously, we worship a crucified Savior. Uh, and we worship a God that came in judgment against hypocrites in AD 70. We worship a God that chooses and has his elect, has his people. Um, we worship a God that his way is narrow and wide, right there's the bad news, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be that go that way. So again, that is some sad news. And however, we qualified this yesterday in our study that we follow a sad news with, or no, a sad story with good news, right? Because there's good news that comes through the story. The story itself, you know, you, you read through scripture, and I've mentioned this many times. When I read through scripture, I get frustrated because I sit there and I say, what is wrong with these people? Especially at the point that we're at here in Exodus chapter 6. If you've been following along through Genesis, one of my emotions, you know, we talked about emotions this morning. When I read the scriptures and I, I read up from Genesis 1 to Exodus chapter 6, my immediate reaction is, wow, this God is great. Why did he choose this people? He couldn't find somebody that would have been a little bit more clean cut. Again, are you following the family story here that we've been reading from Genesis 1? You know, he couldn't have found a better family that would have maybe listened a little bit better. Um, you know, and obviously, I, my emotions get the best of me when I read up to this part. And it, don't worry, it gets worse as we continue through Exodus. So, man, they really don't learn. So uh, it's a sad story. Again, it, sometimes it, it does become... Uh, you know, a bit burdensome to read the story and to wonder, why did God do it this way? But what I've come to notice is, thank God it's not my way, because what God does through this sad story is he creates a beautiful good news, a good news that can only be understood when we have the mind of Christ, which 1 Corinthians 2 reminds us is only can happen by way of the Spirit of God. So I would preface that these judgments, right, these judgments that we're going to read about here, um, they're bad. They're bad. You know, who wants frogs coming in their land or blood filling all their rivers or all these different things? But again, as you'll read through, there's a good news being revealed through each of these judgments. And that's why it's important when we understand judgment to know that judgment from a carnal, natural way of thinking does sometimes look sad, devastating, depressing. But then when we look at it and we renew our minds, that's what Romans 12 challenges us to do, to renew our mind according to the word of God, when we do that and we renew our mind and we have that spiritual influence um, that allows us to see the, the judgments of God in a whole different light, we see them as beautiful. We see that narrow road as a beautiful reality rather than saying, well, why do so many go to destruction? We say, thank God that God did something for those that 
are on the narrow path, that have that opportunity to follow after our Lord. So I want to move right into talking about hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. Obviously, this is a case that God demonstrates sovereignty over everything. Right? That's the first thing that I get from when I read Exodus chapters 6 or 7 through 9, is uh, you see a story of God's sovereignty. There's no doubt about it. He's declaring his sovereignty through each of these plagues, and that is the purpose of the text. He hardens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened almost beyond reason. It's, you know, again, you, you read the judgments that come forth, and you would wonder, how, how stubborn can you be? How obstinate against what is being revealed right in your midst can you truly be? And uh, the reasons God did this are found all throughout the text. Matter of fact, I want to take us through the text, if you don't mind. I know it's going to be a little bit of grueling reading, but I want to kind of point out some things that are found in and through the text. Starting at Exodus chapter 7, verse 6. So we see here that Moses and Aaron are commissioned now to go before the Pharaoh, right? One to be the God, the other to be the prophet, right? Aaron's going to be the prophet of Moses. And they go, and verse 6 tells us that they did exactly that. They went before the Pharaoh, they declared these things. Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron fourscore and three years old, and when they spoke to the Pharaoh. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh shall speak to you, show him a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod, cast it before the Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. Moses and Aaron went into the Pharaoh, and they did exactly that. And then, of course, we see in verse 11, the Pharaoh also called the wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. They did this also with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Again, God showing his strength and sovereignty over what these magicians of the Egyptian court could do. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to the Pharaoh in the morning, before he goes to the water. Stand by the river's bank. And as he comes, the rod which you turned into a serpent, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. However, the Pharaoh would not hear. So then said the Lord, in this shall you know that I am the Lord. And that's something I have underlined in my Bible, because that's one of the points of what's going on here. Is he's bringing forth these plagues, these judgments, to show I am the Lord. That's one of his major reasons for these plagues. In this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite the rod that is in that is in my hand upon the waters, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water because of the blood. The Lord spoke to Moses and said to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, their rivers, and upon their ponds, and all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And again, as we move into verse 20, all the waters that were in the river turned to blood. And as I'm going through here, I wanted to point out a couple of different things. I'm not going to read through the whole text. I'd rather just point out a couple of things to you here. You go to chapter 8, verse 10. It says, And he said, Tomorrow, be it according to your word, that you may know that there is none like the Lord our God. So verse 17 of chapter 7 says, In this you will know that I am the Lord. So he's bringing forth something to show that he is the Lord. And then verse 10 of chapter 8 says, that you may know that there's none like me. So you see, I am the Lord, but there's none like me. 
verse 19 of chapter 8 says, this is the finger of God. So now the magicians turn to the Pharaoh and they basically say, this is the finger of God. This is, you know, there's nothing we can do to uh, combat this, you know, again, because you're seeing like this battle between the Pharaoh's court, his magician, and what God is able to do through Aaron and Moses. What readily came to mind for me was, and I'm imagining many of you are thinking about it, is that battle between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Right? Again, you saw the same sort of picture there, this cosmic battle between the gods, so to speak. And uh, so continuing, there's a couple other points I wanted to make through the text. Verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 22 of chapter 8 says, and I underlined these in my Bible, I'd encourage you to do so as well. Verse 22 of chapter 8 says, To the end that you may know, I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So now we have three different things that are happening as per these plagues being poured out. You have that you may know I am the Lord, that you may know I am the Lord and there is none like me, that you may know that I am the Lord and I am in the midst of the earth. Continuing in the text, we see in verse 14 of chapter 9, that you may, I'm sorry, that was where we were, that you may know that I am, that there's none like me in all the earth. Verse 16, and in this very deed, I have raised you up to show my power and my name and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And then the last one I'll bring up is 9 verse 29 where it says that thou may knowest how the earth is the Lord's. So you have four things, four main things marked out there. That you would know that I am the Lord, that you would know I am the Lord and there is none like me, that you would know that I am the Lord that is in the midst of the earth, and that you would know that the earth is mine. You see, those are the four major things being marked out for the reasons of these plagues. And those are four things that I believe each and every one of us can internalize. Right? We need to know those things. And I'm going to show you how these plagues highlight those images and, and make them a reality not only for these that are going through this exodus, we're going to show you that this is a template for another exodus, the second exodus it's called in scripture or in theology, and then also, as I've marked out, the third exodus, which is our lives and how we're coming out of darkness and sin and ultimately um, to the glorious reality of the promised land, eternal life in Christ. So backing up, I want to take us to that Pharaoh's heart, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, I just pointed out to you the reasons why God was bringing about these plagues. And um, his ultimate goal is to show, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. There's none like me. I am the Lord. I am in the midst of you. I am the Lord that is in charge of this earth. And something that's very interesting that one commentator had pointed out is that it switches back and forth between the Pharaoh hardened his heart and the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart. If you notice that, if you go through and you do the study, it's interesting that it goes back and forth. And one commentator had pointed out that only the actions that defy logic, for example, Everybody in front of you, including your magicians, have boils, and they can't even stand up to do a miracle because of what these men had done. It says there, the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Because again, for me, I sit there and I wonder, how could you be a human and in your own mind deny what is happening right there in front of you? And I'll also make this case that many people have asked me, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you're denying the very move of God, the very act of God that is happening right in front of you. And that's what Jesus Christ was rebuking his generation about. He's going about proving the miracles that their prophets told them about. He's doing the things right in front of them that for thousands of hundreds of years the prophets talked about. 
and yet they're denying it right in front of them. So that's when Jesus goes on in that verse that everybody talks about where he says that, you know, all things will be forgiven of men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be, or blasphemy against, I mixed it up, but either way, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit um, will not be forgiven of all men. And uh, so you see, that's what's happening here. And the Lord's doing this, which is strange, right? From a very natural, cursory overview, it becomes strange. Why would the Lord harden this Pharaoh's heart so that, I'm going to answer the question, but uh, why would the Lord Pharaoh's, harden the Pharaoh's heart so, in such a way that it would seem, it would seem almost silly? It, it, seems, it defies logic is what I'm looking for there. It, it just doesn't make much sense. And I believe the answer to that is because the Lord is sovereign, and through his sovereignty, he's going to show you, he's going to explain by the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart how stubborn man's heart is, A, and B, that he can override, he is sovereign, he can override whatever actions this Pharaoh thinks he's going to do with his people. One commentator made this note, and I thought this was interesting. All acts can be ascribed to God. Right? When you say, I walk down the street, well, technically, the Lord made you or allowed you to walk down the street. Right? So all actions can be ascribed to God because all are caused by him. Some through absolute decree and other through free choice. Right? So everything God is doing, everything, even if you're doing it yourself, you're freely doing it, or if he needs to grab you, like me coming to salvation, you know, he kind of had a, let me get a hold on this guy and bring him to where I need him to be. Something that was completely outside of my free will. Right? I don't, as a dead man, I don't know how a dead man would raise himself. So it says here, it can therefore be said that as the author of all acts, the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart. So instead of looking at it as almost like a forced harden, you would say, well, no, the Pharaoh was willing to refuse in and of himself. So of course the Lord, being the one who precipitated that act, the Lord hardened his heart. I want to share a little bit of some things that I was reading regarding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that I found uh, rather interesting. I'll give you a couple different uh, details regarding the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. Had it not been for the hardening of his heart, Pharaoh would have certainly released the Israelites, not, however, because of a sincere desire to repent and submit to the divine will, but because he could no longer bear the suffering caused by the plagues. Again, you know, as I'm reading, I'm wondering, why don't you just let them go? Like, just get these people out of your land. God, therefore, hardened the Pharaoh's heart and fortified his ability to endure the plagues so that the king would not release the Israelites simply because of fear of the impending calamities. goes on to note that true repentance, right? God wants true repentance from all. True repentance does not take place under duress cannot be forced. So the Pharaoh saying, I'm sorry, or repenting of these things, it would have only been because of the plagues. It would have only been because of duress. Therefore, God hardens the Pharaoh against physical and mental effects of these calamities. By doing so, he affords the king and the subjects the opportunity to repent by their own free will, not because of the pain of the plagues, but because of the message. See, because again, I know that the Pharaoh, I, when I read through the text, I wondered, boils on your magicians. That, that was the one that caught me. I don't know where, where you get caught. I mean, I imagine each one of those plagues disturbs us a bit differently in each place, right? We talked about emotions this morning, and I, for me, I, my study last night, even into this text, and um, thinking about what we're talking about this morning, it really highlights an individual reality, right? When I look at the plagues, 
I know that there's some of us that are more disgusted with frogs than boils, right? So I know the frogs one would bother you more than the boils. Or, and we're not talking about the last two because darkness and death should traumatize each and every one of us the same. Um, however, when you talk about the first couple plagues, right, you got frogs, boils. Um, me, I'm a skin guy. You know, rashes bother me, and that's the one right there. You got me. Um, see, Raven's laughing. Um, so uh, frogs, and what are the other ones? Um, lice. Uh, lice might get some of you. Um, locusts. I've never really been attacked by a locust, so I don't really know what that's like. Um, but again, you know, each one of these things, and I want to kind of make that my point here, is that these plagues are going to be different for each and every one of us. And the Pharaoh, he hardens his heart to each one of these disturbing plagues that I imagine, that right there I told you, boils. Boils, you got me. I'm, I'm letting them go. Let them go. But God seems to do something here. He's, he's painting a picture. That's why God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. This is not a story about the Pharaoh's salvation. This is a story about God doing something to declare his sovereignty over the earth. I am the Lord, there's none like me. What was our for? I am in the midst of thee, and the earth is mine. There we go. I am the Lord of the earth. So it's, I am the Lord. I'm going to make sure we get these four down. This, if you leave with anything today, you're going to leave with these four. Because that's what he wanted to make known through these plagues. I am the Lord. There is none like me. I am in the midst of the earth, and the earth belongs to me. I feel like I preached a sermon right there because that's the definite things that needed to be made known. But continuing here, there's quite a few different reasons for the, uh, for the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. One of the ones that I thought was interesting was the fact that the ability to repent is itself a gift from God. It's not an inalienable right under all circumstances. This gift will be denied to the perpetrators of the most heinous crimes, and surely the Pharaoh was guilty of heinous crimes to ensure that they receive the justice they deserve. You know, there's a personal point here, but I know many of us in our turmoils of this world and sometimes dealing with stubborn or obstinate people, we have probably hoped that, I hope this person will hold out and be stubborn so that they can receive the just punishment for what they deserve. And I know that's a carnal thought. It's a carnal thought, but again, that's very present there with the Pharaoh, that the Pharaoh, you almost want him to be stubborn against the gospel for the hurt and the calamity and the, remember how stubborn he was with Israel. Remember, these people, they say, we just want to go worship our God. He says, make them work harder. Make them put heavy burdens on these people so that they won't go worship their God. So you would imagine being an Israelite, you do not want the Pharaoh to repent. You want, God, I hope you give him the full force of punishment that he will receive. And that, it seems to be that's what God's doing in that hardening of his heart. He hardens the Pharaoh's heart so much that it turns out bad for the Pharaoh. It, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rough punishment upon his head. Also, the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart was said to have been caused by the way the plagues were brought about, right? So the first plague, the river turns to blood. Yeah. Okay, you know, what do you have next? Next plague, you know, frogs come, lice come, boils come, and each one of these things, and obviously next week we're going to talk about those last two, the darkness and the, uh, and the death of the firstborn. Um, but each one of these seems to, he's able to stay strong. He's able to be hardened against that, uh, that plague. And what it points out is that his hardening of his heart and the eventual releasing of Israel um, is not an independent phenomenon. It's something that grows out of this situation, the way that God strategically brings about each one of these plagues, which I believe is a part of his sovereignty. Not only do we see God as seated above and sovereign in all things, 
We also look to each event and we say, God planned this thing, this event out to the T for his purposes. Not, you know, uh, I know in my life sometimes I, I try to figure out God's sovereignty, something we should never do. Um, I try to figure out, so what part of this are you in control of? And then what part am I in control of? Right? Like, you know, I try to create that dichotomy there. And uh, God regularly reminds me I'm in control of it all, even the way you're going to react to what I'm bringing out. And I, I think that's what each one of these plagues shows is that God is orchestrating this whole thing according to his desire. So that brings me to my next point. So what were the reasons for these plagues? Because like, I want to make the charge this morning that each one of those plagues brought about a different reality. Just like I would be traumatized by boils and Brian might be traumatized by frogs, whatever God is doing in these situations, he's trying to bring about a certain picture, right? So blood. What was the, what was the point of a plague of blood? What was the point of the plague of frogs? You know, and each one of these, I'm going to make the case that they bring about something different. They bring about a different type of... And dare we say this, that each one of our trials in our lives, just like the plagues in Egypt, just like the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, each one of the calamitous things that happen in our lives, they teach us something different. And it's important for that. It's important to notice the purpose in the calamities, or as the sermon is titled, the purpose in the plagues. And I want to share a little bit more with you um, regarding some of the reasons for these plagues. First thing was providing... They provided a vehicle through which God proclaims his existence and his involvement in human affairs. Right? That's the first thing you see God intervening here while Israel is in Egypt. He could have gave them some ways for them to get out on their own. He could have just did something big and they're gone, they're out. So why does God go about this drawn out, go to them, give them this plague, come back, go again, this plague? Why does he do this? And again, we've talked about the declarations, right? So that all Egypt would know that he is the Lord. This commentator points out that far from arbitrary, the plagues and the patterns within are meant to educate the Egyptians, the Israelites, and ultimately us. So a couple different thoughts on the division of the plagues and the reasons for them. Uh, one commentator notes that there seems to be three different groups of how the plagues are all organized. And... Um, actually, this is what's recited if you've done Passover celebration. This is what is celebrated during the Passover night. They go through and they actually have sayings for the three different uh, categories regarding the plagues. You might say the three different categories would be this. The first, the first couple are to prove the existence of God. Right? So he, he puts blood in the Nile. He does things to uh, show his existence. He does things to show his providence that He's involved in life, in all of our lives, involved in this world. And then also the third one would be his ability to control nature. Right? He shows these three things, his existence, his providence. And when we look at the plagues in that manner, we, you know, we begin, begin to understand why they, uh, why they happen in such a way. So I wanted to talk, this is one of the main points I wanted to get to here, was talking about the different gods in Egypt. And this is my charge. This is what I've come to notice through this text. That each one of these plagues actually makes an attack on a certain god of Egypt. And that's what's happening before the Pharaoh. He's not only saying, I am the Lord, there's none like me, I am in your midst, and the earth is mine. He's saying, all your gods are wrong, and I'm ready to show them up right now. And that's exactly what happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And I'll show you. So the first plague was he turns the water into blood. Sure enough, in Egypt, they had... The goddess Khnum, Khnum, K-H-N-U-M, 
And sure enough, that is the guardian of the Nile. Well, where was he? Right? Moses and Aaron say, the God of the Hebrews strikes this water, turns it into blood. Well, where's Kanumat? Sleeping, gone. He was like uh, Baal when, remember, they were offering up the logs. And he says, where's your God? You know, is he sleeping? Um, they had three gods. This is what's interesting. is They had three gods that were supposed to preserve the Nile in Egypt. They had Osiris, they had Hopi, and Knum. These three gods were supposed to be in charge of the Nile. So you'd imagine when Aaron puts his rod over the Nile and it turns to blood, you kind of get what he's saying. Your gods are nothing. They're not here. The second one would be the god of the frogs, right? The frogs come out and they go into all the houses. It actually says it goes into the people's mouths and food, too. If you read the text, I was like, wow, it gets strange there. And uh, sure enough, there's two gods that relate to frogs in Egypt. They would be Hopi and Het. They are the goddesses of fertility. And they're in charge of that. So, um, again, another interesting study that I would challenge you on is that when you look at each of these things, right, you look at how the water turned to blood, well, what did that affect? That affected their livelihood, affected the water, it affected, um, they had blood in their mouths, which is interesting because the people that brought forth blood will therefore eat blood. You see, and also in AD 70, if you, you study out the context there and how this relates, the people that persecuted the Messiah, he promised them judgment. And sure enough, one of the wicked things that we see during that judgment is they began to eat their children. They had blood in their mouths. And that judgment correlates, you know, I'll be bringing that about in uh, email this week, where that judgment in Exodus, the plague, actually correlates to Revelation. And you see them being fulfilled in the first century. God in the first century was reminding his people of the Exodus, reminding them of what happened when somebody kept them in bondage and away from God, what God wanted. Again, knowing that he was trying to pose people out to worship Jesus. And these Pharisees and religious leaders were keeping the people in Jerusalem, were keeping his people in bondage. So he begins to bring out these, uh, these same judgments to remind them. Remember the last time? You know, remember back in the days of Exodus? And uh, I'll say more about that in one moment. So the gods of Egypt, continuing down that. So then we see lice. We know Seb was the god of Egypt, the earth god of Egypt. He was supposed to control lice and, and the different uh, bugs and the, the diseases. Um, the god's name Seb, S-E-B, um, if you're taking notes. Um, then we have flies, right? The fourth plague was flies. Sure enough, there's the fly god of Egypt, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Utachit is what we're going to take a – sounds like a Native American name. But uh, Utachit is the uh, – the, um, God of the flies there in Egypt. And you continue down. You know, you have the gods of the cattle. You have gods of boils. Well, you have gods of healing. And lastly, I'm going to make the last two points, God of, the goddesses of hail, nut, Isis, um, and Seth, and locusts. The Egyptian deity, or deity that was a protector from locusts was Serapa. And surely that day when the locusts invaded the land of Egypt, Serapa was sleeping or somewhere else. Again, my point is, is each one of these plagues not only made an attack on Egypt and brought about calamities, they attacked their gods, and it was a, there's a deeper connotation to each of those. And again, it's not, I'm not going to have time to tell you all that this morning, nor do I have the notes to do so. But uh, it's an interesting study when you go through that and you look and you see um, how frogs invading the land. Again, you see this in the, New, in the book of Revelation as well. And what it does is it affects the livelihood of the land. The frogs invading everything, and now you have to throw out stuff. Things become diseased and, you know, not wanting to be eaten, and a whole, whole bunch of things. So I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that study. Um, that brings me to my last point I want to make this morning, and it's regarding 
how the New Testament builds upon this Exodus event here. And that's why it's important to understand pattern. It's important to understand what the Exodus was, what was happening here and how God was showing his providence and the release, the necessary release of his people so that they can worship him with one mind, one heart, one soul, and all their strength. We see the same thing happening in the New Testament. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that all of this in the Old Testament was an example for what was being revealed in the New Testament. And a failure to understand not only the context, but also to understand how each one of the plagues brought about something regarding the people of God and the people that were being persecuted, that were persecuting them. Um, failure to do that is what also fosters futurism. The futuristic view doesn't understand everything we need, all the types, the patterns, and the antitypes are literally found by studying Exodus, looking at the book of Revelation, and just a little bit of history in the first century or, as, or in ancient history regarding the Exodus. When we understand those things, the picture becomes very clear as to what the Old Testament, ha- what happened there, and how this quote-unquote second Exodus motif or pattern is used throughout Scripture. I'll give you a couple examples, and I might encourage you to check out uh, Daniel Rogers. He's a preacher in the Church of Christ. He has a website called Labor Not in Vain. And if you want to understand that, how the New Testament exodus, if you will, the, new, the second exodus, if you want to understand how that really comes full force, Daniel Rogers gives some great stuff. He shows how bondage and exodus, right? Bondage and exodus was easy. They were, bless you. Um, they were in bondage to um, Pharaoh in Egypt, right? But then when you get to the New Testament, the question becomes, what were those people in bondage to? Galatians 5.1, right? Galatians 5.1 marks out the things that they were in bondage to, the elements, the law. Uh, we see Moses is told that one greater than him will come, right? Perfectly, we're all convinced we know who that one greater than him is. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. Uh, so many things that are associated. Baptism is another interesting one that is associated with, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says, they were all baptized into the water with Moses. And then baptism is used in 2 Peter, 1 Peter 3.21, is used in the New Testament and given the same imagery of coming out of the exodus in Egypt and ultimately how you're being baptized into Jesus Christ. You're coming out of a system into a new system. And uh, again, there's so many correlations that when we properly understand them, the Bible opens up to a much more clearer story than what a lot of Christians are often propagating because they don't understand the typology and the the imagery that's being relayed in Exodus, as well as being outlined in the book of Revelation. I'll be sending out an email this week regarding what I call the Exodus-Revelation connection. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be showing you um, each one of the plagues and how they correspond to the book of Revelation. And then I'll make it even more exciting because I'm going to add some historical excerpts for you um, from Josephus and Tacitus and different historians that, you know, help you understand um, how these all correlate and how... And what we've seen in AD 70 ultimately was a fulfillment of the exodus in, you know, that was supposed to be happen in history. Um, what, unfortunately, many Christians are waiting for. Um, you know, it's just it's troubling that we, we can't kind of see how all of this works out in such a pattern. So I'm going to end on that point. And um, I want to encourage us that the prophets did this. They looked at the exodus as a reality, as their reality with God. They said that God is always taking his people out from something and bringing us into a new reality. You see this in the book of Psalms. You see this in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah actually, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, he uses that Exodus motif um, to the fullest, you know, to emphasize his point about the new covenant. And um, 
it's important for us to internalize that because not only were the plagues, did they bring about a reality for the saints in Israel, or for Israel, not only did they bring about a reality for the saints in AD 70, but each one of those plagues, when we study them out, they should challenge us. You know, again, Egypt had their gods. We have ours. We have our cultural gods, if you will. And when we study these things out, they should cause a little bit of a demolishing. You know, our warfare is demolishing of strongholds. It's gods, if you will, that we set up that we think will give us safety, security. And we might not call them gods. We might call them cultural values, if you will. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that we need to make sure we're demolishing. And the proof text for that is 2 Corinthians 10. Um, we need to demolish those things just like the plagues of Egypt. The plagues were brought about through Egypt um, to emphasize God's sovereignty over those certain details. I imagine when God turned the Nile into blood, what he was essentially saying to Egypt was, I'm in charge of the water. I'm in charge of your entire land. And by the way, studying out the, why the Nile was so important to Egypt is another interesting thing. It was literally their life source. So yeah, it was, it was the life source. So they're definitely making, God was making clear I am in charge of everything, everything. And then you think about the frogs, and again, it's much more study than we have time for. But I would encourage us to do that. My point this morning that I want to end on is this. As I read through this, and I sort of, lately I've been seeking application, because I want to love the Lord more. I want to be, I don't want to be like Pharaoh, I want to be like Israel. I don't want to be like Moses sometimes either. Um, I want to be like Jesus. Um, Moses doubts a lot. And, uh, you know, as I go through this, and I look at what happened in the first century, and I'm glad to be a preterist, and I'm glad to understand how this all correlates and all this knowledge. But then I wonder, and as we talk about in our Sunday school this morning, how does it all connect? And the connection is going to be a lot easier than the rest of the sermon. And the connection is this. When I've celebrated Passover, right, I've done the, the sit-down, and you go through all the plagues, something that stands out to me, and I meant to have a prop, and I don't have it with me this morning, but I'm going to tell you. Um, you go through Passover, what you do during the Passover celebration, as each one of the plagues are recounted, you dip your hand in your wine, and you're supposed to put it on a napkin. Right? You dip your hand in the wine, and you put it on a napkin. And you, by the time you go through these plagues, you have a napkin covered in red wine. And what it's supposed to represent is blood. It's supposed to represent the, the blood that was necessary that comes through all these plagues. Again, Egypt was filled with blood by the time all the plagues went through. And we know that all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that the Passover, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And obviously when I go through the, the plagues, when I go through the Passover celebration, I regularly remind myself of how stubborn the heart of man is. Because all those plagues weren't necessary. This man's heart wasn't so stubborn and obstinate against God. I identify with Pharaoh in that area. But then I turn the, when I look at the napkin, you, know, I might, you might say I turn it over, so wine goes through the napkin. Um, I turn the napkin over, it's still red. And that's the new covenant. And I look at that and I say, well, what, the blood, what should the blood mean to me now? And it means that the blood of Christ will shatter all the idols that are there. The idols in Egypt, the blood shattered the, the, the idols in Egypt. The blood of the first century, Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of his people. That definitely brought about a new reality. And then I think, how does that apply to my life? And, and I want to challenge you, you know, maybe um, do a Passover celebration of your own and internalize that reality. And what do those plagues mean? When you look at that blood-stained napkin, what does it mean? What does it mean that God brought all these plagues upon Egypt? What does it mean that God brought all these plagues upon first century Jerusalem and left the city destroyed as his people thrived in freedom and liberty and in Christ? What does all of that mean? How should we internalize that? I'm going to end on that point and end us in prayer. Mighty God, Lord, I do thank you for your word. 
We thank you for a story that you have painted, Lord, regarding your redemption and your salvation. We ask that you would continue to allow us to understand this beautiful story, Lord, that we would press a bit deeper into understanding how the plagues not only applied in Egypt, Lord, but how they apply to us, how they applied in the first century and how that correlates uh, through all our theology and ultimately what all of this means. Lord, we know that our warfare is the warfare to demolish, demolish strongholds, Lord, and to lead all thoughts captive to you. May we continue to journey into this story, continue thinking through the details, not only noting the historical context, but also seeing our part in this beautiful story that you have created, Lord. We thank you for our part. We thank you for the grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, since we don't have any musicians in the house today, I uh, wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, 